2: You're listening to episode 248 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor here, and I'm joined as always by the great Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief?
1: Oh, you know, survived another uh, Super Bowl, survived another TCA press tour. So basically, just moving forward.
2: That sounds good. Spring training's in in, uh, full bloom here. Not here, but in Arizona, I'm very pumped for baseball to really get started and to see some pitches and to hear some calls of games and just the the crack of the bat. I'm pumped. This is my favorite time of year. Just, you know, let the weather warm up like 15 or 20 degrees and stop rain. And then it'll, it'll be my time to shine. It's, it's sunny and,
1: and mild out right now, so...
2: Yes, with a big storm coming this weekend, and I still haven't fixed the leaky doors in our house yet, so... Uh,
1: I yeah. guess I hadn't realized that was coming, so... Yay! Something to look forward to! Woohoo!
2: <laughs> well, no one really wants to hear me talk about baseball, so why don't we dive in and start where we usually do... With headlines.
0: Number one...
2: Up first, Steph Curry will star opposite Adam Pally in a mockumentary called Mr. Throwback from the creatives behind Happy Endings for Peacock. The NBC Universal streamer has also ordered a thriller starring Simu Liu from James Wan and as well as two other scripted shows. It seems like they're kind of finding their lane a little bit.
1: Hey, you you reckon?
2: (laughs) I mean, there's some true crime stuff here. There's mockumentary there. That's obviously a, a, a play after the Abbott audience with, and you've got Steph Curry and it's set at a memorabilia card shop. Like that's like, where do I sign for that? That, that is a very me show. Even although I would have probably subbed out Steph Curry for Shohei Otani.
1: Okay. That, that would be, I, I am not necessarily sure uh, whether Shohei Otani is ready to star in no, a. No, he is not. Comedy mockumentary. <laughs>
2: No, but anyway, yeah, no, it does feel like Peacock is actually starting to figure out what what works and what doesn't work on their service. So there's a John Wayne Gacy limited series based on a docuseries that worked for them, among other things. So they've got lots of crime and thrillers. And and then this mockumentary with perhaps one of the biggest NBA stars in the world right now.
1: Continuing along with big names in casting news, John Hamm has joined the cast of Taylor Sheridan's Newest, latest, whatever, Paramount Plus show. That would be Landman opposite Billy Bob Thornton. A bunch of stuff that we're talking about this week, sort of expanding on stuff that we mentioned last week. Stephen Amell has landed the lead in NBC's Suits LA pilot. The drama is set in the same universe as the Smash kind of quote unquote Netflix hit uh but is not really a spin-off cuz it's got nothing to do with it but boy does it have the same word suits in the title uh <laughs> Over at Grey's Anatomy, fan favorite Jessica Capshaw will return to reprise her role as Arizona Robbins in one episode of season 20. The 10 episode season will feature Ellen Pompeo returning for four episodes. And just in, Meryl Streep will return for season four of Hulu's Only Murders in the Building.
2: I haven't watched Grey's Anatomy for a couple of seasons now, but I'm probably going to tune in for JCap
1: i was I was sitting next to you when the press release came in with the announcement of of the returning characters and whatnot, and you did a little happy dance. so I am not surprised to hear that.
2: Woohoo! Lesbian visibility on TV. Woohoo.
1: <laughs> a little bit like that.
2: Yep. In Renewal News, and speaking of ABC, the network has handed out an early season four renewal for Abbott Elementary with the news announced at TCA with a fun little uh, guest appearance. Elsewhere, Invasion has been picked up for a third season at Apple. Netflix is bringing back Michelle Boutou's Survival of the Thickets for its second season. Goosebumps will return for a second season with an entirely new cast setting and story as it becomes an anthology for Disney+. Plus. And Sci-Fi has renewed Surreal Estate for a third season as the network scripted roster currently consists of Resident Alien, Chucky, Reginald the Vampire, and The Ark.
1: On the unscripted front, Katy Perry will leave ABC's American Idol after its upcoming 22nd season. She has been a judge alongside Lionel Richie and Luke Bryan since the show hopped to ABC in 2018. And also on the ABC reality front, the network has officially ordered The Golden Bachelorette. Though, despite repeated questions uh, about who was going to star in it, we do not yet know.
2: And wrapping up. Evil will conclude with its upcoming fourth season in May on Paramount Plus, which has also ordered four additional episodes to bring the drama from Robert and Michelle King to its conclusion. And Hulu, this was a bummer, right? Hulu has canceled Chris Estrada comedy This Fool after a two-season run. I'm bummed about about This Fool. I don't watch Evil, but I know a lot of people are are, are, are bummed about that. And, and judging from the response of uh, some of it, Evil's stars on social media, it doesn't sound like the decision was theirs.
1: Indeed. Uh, Katja Herber uh, uh, posted a, a tweet, whatever, X, who cares, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Azorb. checking to hmm?
2: Zorb. Sure.
1: Know. You said uh, whatever
2: I wanted to call it.
1: Checking to see if Netflix might have an interest in picking up the show that uh, Paramount Plus already picked up after uh, it left CBS, so only so far it can move. Uh, yeah, no, both of those two things are a bummer. It had been way too long since the second season of of this fool premiered it it did not feel as if that was a a thing that was likely to come back but that is that is definitely a bummer that was a much better show than the audience it ever received and evil look it was (laughs) it was too much serialized and too dark to function properly on cbs and too unaffiliated with Taylor Sheridan or the Star Trek franchise to function properly on Paramount Plus. So yeah, that I would say I would say both of these are are fairly large bummers, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. I do want to go back and plug uh, our interview with Chris Estrada tied to the launch of This Fool. That was from episode one eighty two, August nineteenth, twenty twenty two. It's one of my favorite interviews that we've done. He's great. The show will continue to be on Hulu. But yeah, that's a bummer
1: is indeed number two
2: up next tv's biggest day of the year has may have produced what i thought was a rather dull super bowl matchup but the ratings lived up to the hype for you know the uh, the taylor swift bowl dan there
1: there were a, <laughs> there was a lot of conversation about the show that had i would say leading up to it precious little to do with the actual game itself uh but the game itself was hard to hard to exactly say what the game itself was i, I I've seen some people uh, pardon the interruption they tried calling it one of the best Super Bowls ever. I don't think that's even close to true uh on the other hand, it went into overtime and uh it was a back and forth game in the fourth quarter into overtime, which means that it was it was functionally a good game. I would say that for three quarters it was a lot of very 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 sloppy football and missed opportunities and not particularly good football. So to me that yeah. kind of keeps it from being truly a best Super Bowl ever. But
2: uh, Yeah, it was a sloppy game, you know. The 49ers had so many opportunities and just kind of blew them all and it just felt like both sides, you know, had had played really great defense, but the running game was really non-existent. So It was it was
1: I don't I don't think it was a great game. On the other hand, it did Keep people watching through to the very end because it was extremely competitive because everybody wanted to uh, watch Taylor's uh, Taylor Swift's celebratory endorsement of Joe Biden, which turned out never to happen. Instead, all she did was, you know, tell Travis Kelsey how proud she was of him, which was sweet in its own way. Uh I've seen the statistics. It, it sounds as if uh, she was on screen for slightly under one minute, which meant that a lot of people were complaining about absolutely nothing. Uh, but, but hey, you got to watch her chug a beer. Don't wait. Look, I, I will just say this. I have exactly zero uh, investment in Taylor Swift as a musician, uh, but I find their coupling to be kind of sweet and kind of amusing and her enthusiasm about the whole thing accompanied by uh, by Blake Lively, by Ice Spice, by whoever else was in the booth with them at any given point. I-, I found it charming. I found it exactly one minute of television worth of charming. Like I wasn't for the most part sitting there going, "Ah, oh, God, can we have another 10 seconds of Taylor Swift now? But when Travis Kelsey touched the ball or, yelled in Andy Reid's face and attempted to knock him over so that he could get uh, into the game and have more passes thrown in his direction, I was like, yay! How nice to have Taylor Swift as something different to to vary the telecast. Um, and also, if the alternative was whatever strange thing was happening with with Tony Romo as the game got deeper and deeper into overtime when he just seemed to be rambling incoherently which of course is something that I know a thing or two about you know you give me enough weeks (laughs) where I've got eight different television shows to review in critics corner I am not that different from Tony Romo in that particular case other than the millions of dollars that he is making and the not millions of dollars that I am making but boy, Tony Romo was completely and totally incoherent in the, in the overtime. And he just kept talking like, and and like the game ended and not only did the receiver who caught the final touchdown, not know that the game was actually over. There was a lot of confusion about the overtime rules, but Tony Romo just kept talking and talking and talking through it. You know, there was no, okay, let's, let's kind of enjoy this moment. Let's let the moment speak for itself. No, Tony Romo was not letting anything speak for itself. So, uh, So yeah, that was, that was the game itself, but you know, that not a, not an awful game, not a, not an all time classic. On the other hand, they've had however many Super Bowls they've had. This is only the second one that's gone into overtime. So that is, that is significant. That is competitive. And so, you know, good.
2: And you liked the halftime show, which a made me feel old and B felt like a snooze fest until her came out to shred on the guitar.
1: Okay. So several things there. First of all, it's not as if usher hasn't been around for uh for 30 years. usher is very much someone who has been in the public eye for decades. if you don't know usher and if that makes you feel old, that has nothing to do with anything. that's come on. i think any
2: one song maybe. i mean i'm not the demo that they're that they were recording here. i mean i'm out i'm almost out of the the prime at 18 to 49 demo here. so
1: no, the, the Super Bowl halftime show did exactly what I require a Super Bowl halftime show to do, which is fill 15 minutes when I have pizza egg rolls in the oven. There's nothing else that I need that show to do. And I thought it did. No Totino's, Dan? It, oh, of course, of course. <laughs> it, uh, if we're being honest, uh, it was actually corn dogs that we were making. Uh, my parents were over for the second half of the game, et cetera. We had corn dogs. We had several different kinds of fancy mustard. We had t- t- Totino's in the freezer, but we decided that we'd had enough random frozen crap. Anyway, the halftime show kept me entertaining, and I, I, no, I thought it was entertaining. I I think that Usher is, while not someone who I listen to with any regularity, I do think he is a very, very talented performer, and I think that he has a lot of the attributes that make for a very, very good halftime show. He has songs of various different tempos that cut together well into a greatest hits package. He is a capable dancer, both on his own where he does all the sort of look at me. I like Michael Jackson moves. He's also very good when you put him in a lineup of other talented dancers. Apparently he can roller skate. That was amusing to see. I don't understand how you would not find it amusing to watch people roller skating on a football field in Las Vegas. Uh, I don't know. I, it just seems like an amusing thing to me. And then the various guest stars were were entertaining uh, Alicia Keys sort of with that fantastic red piano. I thought that was cool. All of that the guest stars, cool. whether it was uh, uh, Lil Jon and Ludacris, um, et cetera, et cetera, Will.i.am. I, I, look, would I have wanted – he's about to go on a tour. I suspect the tour is going to be very, very, very popular. Um, And that it's going to be very expensive and that I would probably not want to spend two hours watching an Usher performance, but I totally was happy to watch an Usher performance for 15 minutes.
2: What about a scripted drama based on Usher's career? Would you watch that? Because that's in development in Universal.
1: No, no, I would not. I mean, yes, I would because it's my job to watch things. Uh, so yes, I would totally watch that, Leslie. Uh, <laughs> would because I? Because you excited? have to. I don't know. I just I, look. If there's an entire episode about the making of the faculty, I would watch that. So that's how I figured. It's a little, a little bit like the various Ryan Murphy uh, anthology shows where they have, you know, uh, feud. Capote versus the Swans has an episode which is largely set behind the scenes of uh, murder by death. That's the kind of thing I would watch about Usher is with an entire episode where people were playing little Elijah Wood, little Jordana Brewster, little John Stewart. It's a big week for alums of the uh, of the faculty incidentally between usher at the Super Bowl halftime and John Stewart's Return to the Daily Show. Man, the faculty is just the the most happening movie in all of twenty twenty four. I think. Anyway.
2: Yeah. Well, the Super Bowl was the most happening thing on TV uh, almost all time, or effectively all time, since Nielsen started measuring viewership. So, CBS's broadcast of the Chiefs' 25 to 22 overtime victory over the Niners now ranks as the most watched broadcast in the history of Nielsen's total viewer ratings with 120 million viewers on CBS alone. When factoring in simulcasts on Nickelodeon, Univision, Paramount Plus, among others, the total grew to 123.7 million. Dan, that's a big number.
1: It's a massive number. And look, it. It reflects I mean, all- when you
2: compare that number with the Apollo 11 moon landing that from 1969 that aired across ABC, CBS, and NBC. The estimate for that was between 125 million to 150 million. That's crazy. It,
1: it's hard to believe that wasn't higher, frankly. On the other hand, that totally doesn't uh, take into account how many people were watching the moon landing on various different streaming platforms. So, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry, um, solid. No. This, they keep providing different ways for people to watch the Super Bowl, and that is always going to expand the audience. Whether it's putting it on Paramount Plus, uh, I heard very good things about the SpongeBob SquarePants uh, broadcast on on Nickelodeon. I I've heard it was quite entertaining, and I've seen little clips from it, and it it seems to have been really amusing. And honestly, if I were only a very casual football fan, I probably would have really enjoyed watching the game in that capacity. Instead, I I totally had to stick around and listen to whatever it was that Tony Romo was babbling about. I,
2: I think next year you review the Nickelodeon broadcast.
1: No, stop giving me new things to do. Jesus. It's Come already enough Dan. that I have to review the halftime show. Gosh. And and we haven't even gotten to the commercials. Any famous any favorite commercials?
2: Uh, the one with Jennifer Aniston and David Schwimmer. Oh, that was awful. <laughs> I just, you know what? I, I have a brand and it's friends.
1: <laughs> that that one to me pointed to a lot of what was wrong with the uh, the Super Bowl commercials, where it really was just like, what famous people can we put on the screen and, uh, and force people to attempt to identify in their current forms, uh, <laughs> which was also the, the premise with Jennifer Aniston pretending not to know who David Schwimmer was. Ha <laughs> ha, funny. Um, I don't know. I mean, she Look, should have
2: said, you know, we were on a break. Let's be honest.
1: Maybe that required paying somebody more money. I I don't know. Probably not. Uh, Look, Super Bowl commercials every year, the conversation is about how disappointing they were and how they weren't as good as when we were children. And I think we can all agree that the reason for that is – because they did away with the Bud Bowl. And uh, what the world truly requires in 2024 is a return to the Bud Bowl. And not a fancy Bud Bowl. I just want a Bud Bowl in which bottles of beer are playing football at every single commercial break. Not Don't make it fancy. I want bottles of beer playing football.
2: Yeah, when you say Bud Bowl, I think of something entirely different, Dan.
1: Yeah, that's that's not, I'm talking about the Bud Bowl. I'm talking about the classic Bud Bowl.
2: Um, I mean, reinvent it.
1: Sure, I don't understand why they don't. Uh, There were were a couple of better commercials, but it's hard to kind of remember them. Like, I really can't keep track of of how many commercials Jeff Goldblum was actually in, whether he was in the same commercial for like homes.com or whatever it was that was in several different forms or whether he was really in two or three different commercials. Ditto with Tom Brady, though I know Tom Brady uh, was definitely in the Dunkin' Donuts commercial with Ben Affleck, uh, which was probably my favorite though, only because of Matt Damon's sarcastic responses off to the side. I thought that was genuinely funny, uh, but there was the usual assortment of sort of sentimental stuff that played decently. There was the kind of gross uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, grave robbing commercial I thought that was kind of embarrassing there were all of the the Jesus loves feet commercials that people kept cringing their way through obligatory obligatory Scientology placements when you get to a certain point in the game etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know mixed mixed bag but occasionally entertaining. <laughs>
2: I'm just glad it's over and we can stop writing about commercials being news because that's not news. We're just doing what they what they want, which is promoting what they're trying to promote.
1: <laughs> I'm okay so, with I talking know. about them afterwards. I'm what I'm opposed to is the posting of commercials and trailers ahead of time. That's that's the part that really annoys me. Cause then you're giving a you're taking away all pleasure of discovering the commercials such as discovering a commercial is during the Super Bowl, and you're giving extra bonus commercial placement to these companies who let's get real, don't really need slash deserve the placement. So yeah, I definitely agree with that sort of talking about them afterwards is like whatever. Also the other thing is when you talk about them afterwards, my chances of like, okay, you mentioned the David Schwimmer, uh, Jennifer Aniston commercial, I don't remember what it was for.
2: Uber Eats, I think.
1: Was it? Okay, n- no clue. Could not tell you what it was for, could not tell you what they had to do with anything. So therefore, to me, that is a crappy commercial because if it doesn't make me think, okay, now I'm directly associating it with this thing, what has it accomplished? Whereas the Ben Affleck Dunkin' Donuts commercial, that is that is a knowledge of the brand and you come away talking about it, not as a hmm, what was that that Ben Affleck was advertising for? No, you remember what it was because it's a brand that we all know that Ben Affleck loves, or we think he loves because for some reason that makes him seem like ordinary people. Sure. Anyway, big Super Bowl.
2: But I don't want to end a segment about the Super Bowl without acknowledging what happened at the parade, at the end of the parade. And, um, sending light to all of the victims and the families who were impacted and, yeah, gun, better con- gun control now, please. What you said. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No,
1: Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.
2: We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky
0: today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available
2: to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
0: Number three.
2: Up next, it's official. Peak TV is over. FX CEO John Landgraf started his time before the press at TCA. By bidding adios to Peak TV, the executive revealed that the total volume of scripted originals has indeed tumbled in 2023, with the results coming in at down 14 percent from 600 to 516 last year alone. That's the biggest drop off in at least the past decade. You know, you go back to when FX really got into originals in 2002; the number was 182. Down all the way, you know, looking at, at the high was obviously coming in 2022 with 600. Even after COVID production, it didn't st- it didn't slow the industry. But what I thought was inter- more interesting was what Landgraf attributed as the inciting factor of the end of Peak TV, not the strikes, but rather in a sit-down interview with me, he said that it was netflix and its change in priorities from subscriber growth to focusing instead on profitability areas he said that where netflix was clearly already in in the lead in, uh, when compared to the rest of the streamers that launched obviously in the shadow of a, this giant behemoth that they helped to build to build so with that shift that forced everyone across the landscape to right size their rosters you know, there were Paramount Global announced this week that they were laying off 800 people from various divisions were pouring one out for our friends who have been affected. But yeah, you know, like this is not something that we didn't see coming, but it to see the numbers and that big of a dip, Dan, I was surprised at, how, at just how big it was.
1: Uh, Part of part of what John said uh, at press tour was he made a lot of jokes about uh, (laughs) about broken clocks being right a certain number of times, and you know he's he has both taken a lot of credit for peak TV as a concept, uh, taken a lot of guff for his promise that peak TV was going to begin to recede several years previously um, and given himself both the credit and the guff for that prediction. So I, th- I thought it was amusingly self-effacing in, in that John Landcraft kind of way. Um, I'm not even going to make you go back through your notes to list the various times he's dropped by the podcast, but he is a, he is a frequent guest on the podcast. Friend uh, of
2: five, I would say, uh,
1: but, but 516 scripted shows, um, I didn't have a full sit down with John Landgraf, but I did have a stand up brief conversation with him about how many, how many fewer shows it would take in order to actually be able to digest all of the programming. And we are still so far above and beyond anything that is digestible by either the average viewer or your average television critic that on one hand I can go, okay, 516, that's down from 600. Um, deep sigh yay but but no it's (laughs) there's there's still more receding to go i think and honestly i think the truth of the industry is that there's unfortunately still more receding to go and so i think that i think there's kind of the message that Landgraf was conveying is part one of semi-relief but also one of it has to be one of concern like he didn't say it as a doomsday thing because i think that there was no way that peak tv was sustainable i don't think anyone thought that and that was the whole premise of peak tv to begin with the 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 concept was (laughs) it's got to have a peak at some point it just went longer than anyone anticipated and and yeah so what were other highlights of your chat with the mayor of tv
2: I mean, we really focused on the numbers. And, you know, I asked him a lot about when he he thought the floor would come or what would create what could be a floor. And he talked extensively. And if you've heard Landgraf on our podcast, you know that he doesn't believe in in a TV guide style answer. So effectively what he was saying was that, and you can read the full interview on THR.com, but he was talking about that once the streaming landscape stabilizes, then you'll probably start to see a floor. So there's not going to be the current number of streamers that we currently have because it's just too much. So, you know, there's going to be more mergers and acquisitions. How many of these streamers will will survive? What lanes are they going to stay in, in terms of programming? How are they going to allocate their global, you know, all of their resources to, to... uh, appease global subscribers. Will they continue to license to third parties like the way that Max has with Netflix? But basically, there has to be a stabilization before we can get to the point where things even out. Because the, the numbers, as as they they currently look, we haven't been down at this at this toward this number. The last time we were anywhere close was in 2020 with 493. But that was obviously the COVID impact when originals dropped 7%. But then the following year, they jumped 14% once production was able to get back up and running again. But you know now when you're looking at it, there's hardly any pilots on broadcast. The CW is out of, of the original space, and they're very much in, instead in the foreign acquisitions space, which Brad Schwartz said at TCA Today, acquisitions was not a bad word or import is not a bad word, but it's not the same. So yeah, it's, you know, the thing that I love talking, uh, the thing I love about talking with Landgraf is he will, he sees the big picture. And I asked him, you know, he's been at FX now 20 years, celebrating 20 years. It's a hell of a run. And I asked him what, to make a prediction and what he was most worried about. And he singled out AI, which is obviously a big threat to pretty much everyone in this industry and beyond. But it's also looking at, at the the whole landscape of things, it's a great question. Like, when do we even out? How will we even out? Who will survive? And there's no way of knowing any of that stuff right now. Like we know that Paramount Global, a lot of companies are kicking the tires there. Could they integrate with, with, with Peacock? Could they wind up going to, you know, a a third party? There's a lot of questions about the state of the industry, but I do think you'll start to see, the the contraction continue for I don't know how long because look you know we talked at the the start of the show about Peacock finding its lane but they had to to make and cancel a bunch of stuff before they realized what works and what didn't work and now you're kind of seeing that and this is kind of what Landgraf was talking about is once you get the, the flavor you throw everything at the wall to see what sticks and then once you see what sticks you know like okay they're Peacock's not going to make comedy because if they can't get a great show like Girls Five Eva to work, they're not going to get a new comedy to work on that platform. Right. So instead, now they're going to try this other format, mockumentary stuff. They've got a lot of true crime, etc. So these are the the lessons that they've that a lot of these streamers have learned after launching in 2019-2020 period. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what becomes of this landscape and how the numbers continue to to dwindle and where that floor is. I'm not going to make any predictions. I mean, if Landgraf won't, I certainly won't. So, but I don't see it ending anytime soon.
1: Fortunately, we have a different perspective on a lot of these issues coming up in our next segment.
0: Number four.
2: Up next, joining us to discuss the state of the TV industry is president of Disney's 20th television studio, Carrie Burke. The executive, who shifted from running ABC to the studio in late 2020, counts previous stints at Freeform and at NBC, where she was part of the development team that oversaw the West Wing, ER, Scrubs, and Freaks and Geeks, among countless others. This is Burke's second time on TV's Top 5. She previously joined us in May 2019 to discuss ABC's Live Push. Thanks so much for joining us again, Carrie.
0: Thanks for having me. Nice to see you guys.
2: Likewise, likewise. So the industry has changed considerably since you last joined us. You now run one of Disney's biggest TV studios. And more recently, the peak TV bubble has burst. From your vantage point, what do you consider the biggest challenge for the industry as a whole right now?
0: I think the challenge is the adjustment to the correction. I think the biggest challenge is really helping our creative partners to stay focused on quality over quantity, which is something that that we've always really tried to focus on. And I personally felt that you know, things got pretty out of whack in terms of how many shows we were all collectively producing every year and how much we were asking the viewers to try to pay attention to. And I think the correction is a good thing. And it brings us back to the primary focus, which is quality over quantity and having the work stand the test of being truly must see. And also we're we're challenging ourselves to be more responsible when it comes to production costs, how we make things, uh, making them responsibly and sort of getting everybody in that same boat and rowing in the same direction to do that. And remembering that guardrails can be a great thing for creativity and not a squashing of creativity. Do you guys have any kind of
2: example of how many shows were on your slate maybe a year or two ago and what it looks like now?
0: I can't pull numbers out of the air, but I can tell you there was a time maybe 18 months ago where it felt the volume was simply too much. You know, Bob has spoken about this, our ability to really quality control just the amount of content that was, was going out the door and, and for our, I'm seeing for our, you know, creative partners as well, got really, really challenged. And it, and it feels now like we've right sized that flow. I can't really put a number to it. I just know it was a feeling hold on, are we making sure that, you know, do we have our eye on the ball over everything that is going through our our process and getting on the air? I'm
1: curious. I I don't know if you have an answer to it, but how does that happen? How do you end up in that position of feeling like you're going downhill and and the brakes are out on your car and there's nothing you can do? And And at what point do you realize the brakes are out on your car?
0: Daniel, that is the recurring nightmare I have. Like, literally, my actual nightmare is that I'm driving a car and the brakes don't work anymore, and I am going to careen off the edge of a freeway or into an pavement. <laughs> so you just put your finger on um, my st- the, the metaphor in my stress dreams. I don't think it ever got to that. I don't think we felt like we weren't you know, producing good work for our partners and with our partners. But I do think that we collectively felt at capacity, unless we really bulked up our ranks, I I think that probably would have been the only thing we could have done. It just felt like there wasn't enough time to have all the attention to detail that we would want. And I think it didn't last long. I think the business pretty naturally corrected itself. And I don't think I'm speaking for just our studio and my friends across the business. We were sort of all feeling the stretch at the same time. So I'm not sure if that is, you know, a satisfying answer. But it's really I just can describe the, the
2: feeling. It's the equivalent of, of Dan ending every episode going, there's too much TV.
0: Yeah. But I mean, you you, sort
1: of, you say it was a natural correction, but how much of the correction was to some degree forced on you guys by the strikes last year?
0: I think this was happening before the strikes. Okay. Absolutely.
2: So I interviewed Landgraf this week at TCA and he, he mentioned that he thinks that the inciting factor of peak TV was Netflix changing the key metric from subscriber gro- growth to profits. Would you agree or disagree with that?
0: I would agree with my colleague.
2: That's fair.
1: So when it comes to the strike, there was there was a lot of speculation for months and months and months about what was going to happen when all of those writers got off the picket line and suddenly the marketplace opened up again and, and the floodgates opened up. How has the actual opening of the deal-making floodgates compared to what you might've hoped or expected or feared it would be?
0: I think, and this is, uh, you know, other people have said this, the town was not flooded with spec scripts. <laughs> the, my memory of 07, I was actually producer then during the last strike, was more of a more of a a buying frenzy post strike whether it was literally the time of year that we ended that we were naturally sort of sliding into the holidays i'm not sure but i think that surprisingly and frankly happily we returned pretty quickly to a normal course of business and that sort of chaos of selling didn't really manifest. The massive contraction didn't really happen. We got right back to work on as many shows as we could, as quickly quickly as we could. We were in production on several shows really before the holiday break, so that we could get shows back on the air as quickly as possible for the audience. And all credit to my boss, Dana Walden, who had what I thought was a brilliant idea of gathering our creative partners all together as soon as we could. We had an evening where all the studios and platform executives and writers and directors and producers that had just been apart for so long got together on one night. And it was actually a wonderful just reminder that we're all In this together and we all actually like each other whatever hatchets were to be buried were buried over a glass of wine and everybody went back to work so it was kind of i mean it's kind of a boring answer but everybody just got back to work
2: yeah you know obviously the focus has been on getting these broadcast specific shows back up and running so that they could get on the air and bring in revenue for everyone ASAP, but this is also the time, middle of February, that, that used to be one of my busiest times of the year, pilot season. And now it's for the most part crickets. And 20th used to be one of the most prolific studios every pilot season. I, I've lost count of how many times they, they finished number one in terms of studio volume on those pilot charts that I used to do, which feels like another <laughs> lifetime ago. But yeah. a, as a seller, For you, what's the perk and the pain of of selling to broadcast right now, especially in this landscape where you've got networks like CBS and Fox who are essentially sitting the season out?
0: Well, look, the perk is you know, we produce Tracker. So we were, (laughs) we are thrilled with how CBS has supported that show and launched that show. And it really goes back to how they, they picked up that pilot very, very early, went straight to series off cycle, and were able to really give us the time to hone it, to have it Become something that they felt so supremely confident in that they could put behind the Super Bowl. So, you know, I have long felt that shows are advantaged by being out of the sausage factory of pilot season. It is not the best way to make television. And I'm happy to, we'll make a couple pilots this year, and I'm happy to have more time, a deeper talent pool, more resources to be able to do that and get them right. And it feels good to know that they, you know, the things they believe in, that they'll take that chance and get something going into series production off cycle versus waiting for this ceremonial, (laughs) frankly, antiquated, you know, three months out of the year where we all chase the same actors and the same directors and the same producers, for you, how do you pitch 20th's value as part of a,
2: a larger slate under the Disney umbrella, especially at a time when writers have a variety of places to go, not just at Disney. You've got, you know, 20th, ABC Signature, FX Productions, Touchstone, you know, there's so many different studios within the Disney fold, and that's just at one company. And then you have the same thing. You've got Netflix, Apple's got its own studio, Fox now has its own studio, all the other streamers are, have in-house. So what's the pitch to come to 20th? Like if you're going to not only come to Disney, but to come to 20th specifically.
0: Oh, well, thank you for teeing me up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do have a lot of writers who listen to our show.
0: Yes. The pitch to come to 20th is really that we can provide a writer, a creator, really the best of all worlds. I'm very proud of the tradition of this studio that I inherited, as you said, as just the top of the list always every year in terms of pilots made and shows produced and Emmys won. There's just an incredible history and pedigree and legacy that is still populated by, I'm surrounded by people that have been at 20th for 20 years, and they're the best in the business. Sharon Klein, who's is about to be awarded for just her sheer genius and, and track record in casting, and and her protege, Stephanie Levinson, who oversees casting and talent for us, and Jane Francis, who runs series, and Carolyn Cassidy, and they've grown up here and are best in class creative executives. But that said, we partner with FXP all the time, we partner with Signature all the time, we partner with Searchlight all the time. So if a writer comes to 20th, and has a show that they want to sell to Hulu, but they, there's somebody they want to work with over at ABC Signature, we can help put that together. So our boundaries between the studios are very porous. I like to say we are, you know, you can mix and match from the different studios in order to put the best package together for your project. And then platforms of the Walt Disney Company are the home team. And we love to win for the home team. So we are tons of shows at Hulu, ABC, FX, Onyx, Disney Plus. And yet we are, have always been in the third-party business. We'll continue to be in the third-party business. And if something doesn't feel right for the home team, we'll go out and sell it around town. It really comes down to the people here. And, and the reason to be a 20th is because a creator wants to work with the folks that are working hard here.
2: So where do things stand with Ryan Murphy? Has his uh, deal to return home to 20th closed? Does he have new ideas beyond the franchises
0: that he's currently attached to? Listen, you know, we've been in business with Ryan for over 20 years, which is incredible. We're going to continue to be in business with Ryan for as long as he wants to create shows, which feels limitless, which is makes him just the most exciting creative partner. I am thrilled with the performance of Feud, which has been in the top 15 on Hulu every day since its launch. And really, his ability to attract talent to his shows just evidenced in that poster, <laughs> unparalleled. And super excited to see 911 move to ABC. And he's been really involved with Tim and Neer in this season. And ABC is treating it like a first season show, like a brand new launch. So that's super exciting. You're just going to continue to see great shows come from Ryan for us as he's been doing for the last couple decades. So his deal is closed then? <laughs> he's part of our family and he always will be. Oh and by the way, we which we have announced the Kim Kardashian show at Hulu. Right. And as as you know better than anybody, you know, Ryan is the master of his own announcements. And so anything else that is to come, I'm gonna I'm gonna let him drive that train. But that show in particular is for us to have a new original, ongoing, really procedural from Ryan with the most recognized name in the world and the and the concept that he came up with for her is is really really brilliant. I can I can't wait for that show.
2: So what's the priority for Ryan there? Is it new anthol is it new anthologies, spin-offs of ongoing shows, ongoing series like, you know, ongoing things like renewable assets like the Kim K thing?
0: Yeah, the priority really for for everyone is you I'm sure you're hearing this across town, or returning series, shows that can really frankly our priority with Ryan is whatever he wants to do, and he's the master of both. And that's a really laudable and frankly rare skill set to be as good at those limited series as as you are in creating an ongoing asset that lasts for years and years. You know, shows like 911 can go on. We expect it to go on for many, many, many years. But the priority for all of us is is really right now at this moment, shows that can return and just hook the viewer for years on end and characters they're going to fall in love with and stay with for years on end and build big libraries for us.
1: Well, a lot of the conversation in the past few years has been about the appeal of limited series and how you could get all of these actors who you never under other circumstances could have gotten for a 22 episode or even a 15 episode returning series. But now suddenly we do seem to be back to people saying, "Okay, the limited series is maybe not our priority anymore. What happened there? And from your perspective, what would make you want to do a limited series versus... Not
0: well. For example, we have a super exciting limited series coming from, and I think this has been announced: Warren Littlefield, uh, KJ Steinberg, and Monica Lewinsky, who brought us Amanda Knox, who is prepared to tell her story for the first time ever as a scripted limited for Hulu, and it's it's incredibly exciting, and that's attracting a level of talent that is just movie stars. And yet I would say right now we are having just as much luck casting big name talent in ongoing series. And I think that was not the case a year ago or so. But I feel a shift because there's a recognition that you can still do 10 episodes of a series for a streaming platform, a cable platform every year and do... Filmer. And those, I don't think signing up for a multi-year series has the onus that it used to. And so we're finding that people are understanding now, oh, there's no downside to that. Yeah, I mean,
2: what's interesting to me, just as a quick little detour here is, you know, I think a lot of that changed. I remember with like, you know, Viola Davis signing on to... yeah. The murder show that Sean Rives did for ABC. How to Happy Get Away David with Murder. Carter. God, I can't yeah. believe I forgot the name of that. You know, because it's like it was 15 episodes and that was like shortly after Kevin Bacon did the following, which was the kind of the same thing. And But at the same time, given this priority of returnable assets and ongoing shows that can produce and build a big library, which you said is something that is a priority to you, how does that change when you're attracting these, you know, top name stars only doing 10 episodes at a time, whether it's new, ongoing or limited?
0: Well, I mean, look at Only Murders in the Building, right? <laughs> as an example of a show that it just, it's it's built with big giant stars. And, you know, we had Meryl Streep as a guest star last year. And Paul Rudd, as I was cracking up, I would talk about Only Murders in the Building and I would be like, oh yeah, and Paul Rudd's also in it because <laughs> it was Meryl and it was just, it, and Meryl's returning for next season because she had a tremendous time. So Again, I think it's, you know, it's very show dependent. Is this, you know, there's not, I don't think a truism yet. I think it comes down to an actor's attraction to material and willingness and, and frankly, ability to make a certain level of commitment. And we try to be as accommodating as possible, given the individual actor's wants and needs. You know, you are seeing it certainly in the broadcast space, Whereas when we did Had to Get Away with Murder with Viola, 18 was really an anomaly. 18 in broadcast is kind of becoming more of the new normal. And so you're seeing that's that's a benefit to actors and it's helping, I think, us and ABC attract a caliber of actor to broadcast television that might have been afraid of the time commitment and the number of episodes five years ago.
1: Well, okay, another thing that's been a big draw obviously in the in the marketplace and we talk about it on the podcast every week is is IP and yeah. you know how everything has a big name and everything has a sellable name for you how do you measure the value of a potentially adaptable or remakeable title and are there overarching lessons you've been able to learn from a number of fairly Big name adaptations, some from 20th and some other that have not been as successful, where it's been a really big name and it just, the name didn't resonate in the way that obviously people expected it to.
2: I mean, How I Met Your Father is a great example of that, I thought. It seemed to work in season one, was renewed for a second season, and then just canceled
0: outright. Yeah. And that was a, that was a surprise and a disappointment, a head scratcher to all of us. Season one was really hit, It was an easily renewable show and i'm not sure i can put my finger on the why of that to be honest you know when i th- i think about percy jackson right that was as a successful example that i've recently been involved with where it was beloved ip that we really worked hard to get right and including rick riordan in that process was really paramount i have a house full of 20-somethings who saw the movie. We read the books when my kids were little and I took them to see the movie and they walked out of the movie and they were so mad that Percy Jackson was 18. And, and now those viewers are in their 20s and they or that fandom is was watching and saying, please get this right because we love this IP. We love these books and we want to show up. And I feel really proud of that as an example of where I think we got it right and, and we'll continue to. But what are the
2: lessons that come from, you know, How I Met Your Father when it doesn't necessarily work the way that you envision or run for nearly as many seasons as as you would have imagined it would have, especially considering the value of How I Met Your Mother to 20th?
0: Look, I think multicam comedy on streaming platforms is still an experiment. I'm not sure that that is what the streaming audience is coming to those platforms for. I'm not sure I'm right about that. You know, I think it's a form that has worked more successfully historically on broadcast television. So I think that could be a factor for as long as, you know, the streamers have been around. There's not a lot of examples of, there's few, of, of multicams. So- I have a feeling it might have something to do with that form.
2: Yeah, but there have been you know other IP that didn't work that wasn't multicam too. But you know it's like you know I look at, at Disney Plus for the last you know year or so, and it's like American Born Chinese. Obviously, that's not that's an original idea, but that was also I think it's if memory serves a one and done graphic novel.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, that, that that it does count as IP, right? You There's, know, the yeah. Muppets as well, and and uh, National Treasure. Like these are big Willow. Right. These are big proven IP. So when they don't work on a service that is built around IP with Star Wars and Marvel, what's the larger lesson?
0: I honestly don't, I I don't, I I don't think there is one. I think just sometimes not everything works, you know, I think that I suppose the lesson could be just because it's known IP doesn't mean it's going to work, right? You, You know, it has to have a real reason for being that feels new and relevant to the audience. And sometimes that's Catching Lightning in a Bottle. That's fair. I'm really proud of American Born Chinese. I I loved that show. And I can't tell you why it didn't catch fire. I'm happy that it'll live on the service, and people will see it. But I'm not sure I can say, well, I wish we'd done such and such differently. I I thought the execution of that was really excellent.
2: Well, you had the new Karate Kid first, so.
0: I know. I know. Sharon and Klein. Yeah, I'm so happy for him.
1: So how has the suits affect impacted your own perspective on kind of the future viability of more recent legacy titles within your catalog?
0: I think it's caused us to look at our catalog (laughs) and ask ourselves, okay, is there another Suits in here? You know, is there, was this an anomaly and a phenomenon? I mean, it certainly was a brilliant effort on Netflix's part, how it was pushed out to the subscriber base. I mean, I was telling the story. I was watching like an animated kid show or something on Netflix, and then it was, was like, if you like this, watch suits. Like really, it was unbelievable effort on their part and and worked. And so we are we're talking about a couple of titles that we have in the library. And I think it's it goes back to the question you just asked, which it's it's gotta have if we're gonna bring something like that back in a reboot form or sequel form or even just pull up the library, I think it's got to have a a real reason for being and catch fire with an audience.
2: Are there any titles you can reveal as an example? I mean, I think you guys did uh, White Collar, right? Which is another one of those Blue Skies shows that aired alongside
0: Suits. Yes, we had cannot reveal anything yet. We're looking at a lot of titles right now. And again, you know, as my old boss, Brandon Tartikoff used to say, imitation is the sincerest form of television. So I don't think we're going to jump at something just to be imitative, but... If something really has a a reason to have new life breathed into it, or we feel like there was an audience that's there that didn't discover it in the first place, then that's a smart conversation to have.
2: Yeah. I want to go back a little bit. I remember one of our first wide ranging interviews when you were plucked from Freeform to run ABC. At the time, you said you had an, an idea for Dan Fogelman, and now you're part of the studio that oversees his deal. First of all, what's the state of his current deal? And did that idea that you had for him come to fruition yet?
0: (laughs) No, it hasn't. So we're going to keep him around long enough for him to do it. I am so, I pinch myself every day that I get to be in business with Dan Fogelman. He is family here at 20th. And our plan is to have Dan stay for as long as he wants to continue to make television. He is hard at work on not only early murders in the building, but a new show, which you know something about. We've announced his untitled show for Hulu with Sterling K. Brown and James Marston and Julian Nicholson. And I've seen seven scripts. It's awesome. It's awesome. And it's unlike anything he's ever done before. And that one of the things that's so exciting about working with Dan is he will he does not he will not repeat himself. And everything he takes on is a new challenge. So probably the idea I had for him when I was back at ABC was some derivative thing of something he'd done before. And he said, no, lady, I'm not going to do that. Um.
2: <laughs> I want to shift to uh, another piece of development here. So this week, there have been some conflicting reports that have emerged about uh, Sarah J. Moss's A Court of Thorns and Roses, which is last we heard in development at Hulu. Uh, at least that's what Craig Erwick said uh, at, at TCA last weekend. But is that still active in development with Ron Moore attached?
0: Yes, nothing has changed since Craig said that three days ago, whenever that was.
2: <laughs> Do you have a sense of a timeline on on where things are in that process? I don't. So there's no, no kind of idea of like, this is, we're going to rewind or we need to go review scripts. Like, have you seen any of the scripts from Ron? Is there any more that you can say about how the development is coming? <laughs>
0: It's just the development process. It's just, it's still in development. I can, there's no more I can say.
2: You know, so I want to shift now to another Ron Moore project. He signed with Disney back in 2021. And one of, I think the first projects that, that we broke was that he was working on the Society of Explorers and Adventures for Disney, which is a Disneyland themed Magic Kingdom show. Yes. As a Disney fan myself, who would love to see this show, where do things stand with that?
0: It is also still in development.
2: <laughs> I mean, are, are, is one, you know, moving quicker than the other? Is there anything you can say about how he's spending his time these days?
0: Well, I can tell you that we just saw a draft from Ron. He was able to get back to work after the strikes, and we hope to be delivering that to Disney-branded television pretty soon. And is that going to be for Disney Plus still? Yeah.
2: Shifting gears a little bit, Paramount this week announced layoffs of eight hundred people. This week we're pouring one out for those uh, affected, but with know. an industry-wide push to cut costs amid this shift to focus on profitability over subscribers, how are you seeing budgets and deals being impacted? I mean, what's the area that t- that is taking the biggest hit? You know, because you did mention you know trying to make shows more economically at the start of the interview.
0: Yeah, I don't really see it as a hit. You know, I, I think it's just a renewed focus on responsible producing and being cost conscious, but without damaging the creativity and each show has its own. Not every show needs to be at a, that's done for a streamer needs to be at a game of Thrones size budget. Each show has its own need for what the production cost is. And and we're getting, we're learning to be more nimble and frankly more international in our approach to production and exploring Production in other countries over my three years here, and that's just that's just being responsible and changing with the times. My background from producing days and then being at Freeform, and we had strained resources, and I, I think has really prepared me to be in this job in this moment. I have an incredible partner in our head of production, Carol Turner, who is just given her background is just really wise and forward thinking about. How we make shows. And that's our job is to always be evolving. And like, I don't think anyone
1: would question that the old pilot model was, was a waste a little of bit on the wasteful side let's just <laughs> that, that it was not a logical way to do business right. but on the other hand i've seen a lot of writers and producers particularly writers and producers of color expressing concern that the dramatic decline in pilots it's going to favor the bigger names with the bigger development deals and it runs the risk of making it harder for writers from underrepresented groups to get the exposure that even a failed pilot used to provide for them. Ditto with all of the actors who were in those uh, pilots who at least had the chance to go in front of the casting directors and all that. Is this a concern that you're keeping in mind and is, is there a way that you can keep it from happening? even as there are dozens and dozens fewer pilots being made?
0: I think it's absolutely a trap to make sure we never fall in. I think the concern is valid. And so our job is to make sure it doesn't happen. I'm thinking about the pilots that we are putting forth to our partners, both at at ABC and across the platforms. We really do have a mix of up and coming new voices creators of color. One of my favorite things we're making right now is a series called Delhi Boys for Onyx. That is about a pair of Pakistani brothers from a Pakistani writer. And we've gone to great lengths to make sure we were staffing that right and casting that right and getting that right. And it has such a fresh voice that it is, I have no doubt it's going to break through. And that started as a pilot you know, nine months ago. So it's our job to make sure that doesn't become a truth.
1: Well, are there kind of alternative pipelines that you feel like you maybe need to open up to make sure that there are those potential avenues open as the pilot season avenue becomes tighter or more constrained?
0: Yes, I think we're talking with a couple of our creative partners about creating opportunities to do like lower cost presentations for some, I will say Jason Weiner and his partner, John Radler came to us with a really brilliant idea. Jason's background was in, in lower cost comedy production when he, before Modern Family, and he kind of went back to his roots um, and said, I, I think there's another way to do things that might let different people in the door and so you know we're working with him on that initiative but there's a number of things that we're doing with our creative partners to make sure that we're keeping those doors open it's critical we have to it's where the next hits are going to come from
1: well there's been this narrative on social media where people talk about these things that yeah. with the contraction and with the number of shows that have been somewhat abruptly truncated and obviously this is not a 20th thing this is a landscape of television thing, that diverse programming has, if not been the first to go in the contraction, it's been somewhat disproportionately impacted. Is that a narrative that feels accurate to you? Does it feel like it's sort of cherry picking data? How How does that narrative ring in your ear?
0: It doesn't ring true to me. Here at 20th, it doesn't. I understand the caution and it's. I think it's very valid, but It so far has not rung true in my experience. Our job is to continue to reflect the culture, pierce the culture. We cannot rely on a closed set of creators to do that. And it's a big priority for us and will continue to be to make sure that, yeah, our roster has inclusion and representation always.
2: And, you know, we are running short of time here. So we do like to wrap with the same question every time, but what have you been watching and enjoying? That isn't a show produced by 20th.
0: (laughs) Fool me once. (laughs) It is like crack. I I haven't finished it, so don't tell me, because I don't know who (laughs) done it. But I, like the rest of America, want to (laughs) know.
1: Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Carrie. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. Number five. As
2: usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots to choose from this week. You've got the new look launching on Apple. Resident Alien returns with this new season on Sci Fi. The Vince Staples Show bows on Netflix. One of my favorites, Life and Beth, returns for season two on Hulu. And the new season of Last Week Tonight kicks off with John Oliver on HBO. Plus, CBS returns to originals with Young Sheldon, Ghosts, and SWAT, among countless others. Dan, what you got for us?
1: Okay, so there are options. I'm not completely sure there are great options, but I think there are options that will respond or that people will respond to in different ways. Like, for example, uh, our colleague Angie Hahn really liked the new look, um, which is great. I I hope that it finds an audience. I, I will say that uh in short form, that it was not for me. I watched three episodes and I will not watch any more. I, I thought it was not unwatchable but it was not a show that got over any of my preconceived issues with it that that's those are very different things like i came in with for example no particular interest in the fashion world of paris in the 1940s now do i think a better show might have made me interested in the fashion world of paris in the 1940s yes absolutely i'm not a I'm not fundamentally opposed. I just don't come in with a um with an interest. Uh and in this case, it was a lot of World War II cliches. Um, very, very well shot, uh, nicely directed by Todd A. Kessler, who was the creator. Uh, but it suffers from like at once, seven different versions of biopic-itis. It's a whole lot of people addressing each other by their full names, so that you know, you know, like they're, late, they're in the first three episodes, there are like four scenes where Christian Dior, as played by Ben Mendelsohn, knocks on someone's door and addresses himself as, it's Christian Dior. And all I could think was, come on, it's just, in some of these cases, you can just say, hey, it's Christian, they know you and that's just not the way this show works. This show works in a lot of declarative sentences about the power of fashion, fashion versus fascism, which I think is an interesting contrast and obviously historically it's it's interesting. Um but there were there were so many things that that got under my skin starting with the the strange assortment of accent work that they decided to do, bunches of people doing Soft French accents for no particular reason, uh, contrasted with soft German accents, none of them particularly meaningful. I think Ben Mendelsohn's good as Christian Dior. Uh, I didn't like Juliette Binoche as Coco Chanel really at all. Uh, Part of it is that it turns out, and this will be shocking, I'm sure, that I'm just not all that interested in uh, pragmatizing uh, rationales behind different levels of Nazi collaboration. I, it, look, if you are, that's totally fine. If you want to get into, ooh, this is a moral gray zone, and she did what she did because she wanted to keep the House of Chanel open because she was uh, very deeply invested in in the people who work there and blah, blah, blah. But fine. That's great. But to me, a Nazi collaborator is a Nazi collaborator, and I, I can't Get past that if you can, Nifty. I would say it is probably excessively apologetic for the things that Coco Chanel did. But if you come in with no preconceptions about Coco Chanel, you might think she comes off as a monster. So you know who's who's to say what you come into the show with. Um, I I it didn't work for me. I thought Maisy Williams was was very good and very committed as Christian Dior's sister who works with the resistance. John Malkovich does what John Malkovich does. He's entertaining to watch doing it. It's kind of amusing to me how Klaus Bang Bang has this sort of aspect to him that makes him into the perfect evil leering Nazi in the background of things. Um, But I think he's good. Emily Mortimer appears in an episode I always enjoy when she pops up. But too many cliches and too many cliches in too many different directions for me. But it's also completely possible that people who have a greater investment or uh, let's just say are more open-minded. Why not? I don't, I don't have a problem with saying that I didn't come in excited about this one. I came in slightly wary. I would have definitely watched 10 episodes or whatever the full run is. Uh, if I had been reviewing it instead, I was perfectly happy to watch the first three and move on to other things for this year podcast. Uh, if I had kept watching it, I would not have watched any of life and Beth. And so, uh, there you go. I watched the entire 10-episode second season of Life and Beth, and th- this is a show whose first season I-, I liked a lot. I think it is a show that does a really good job of alternating between being a very broad comedy and being a comedy that has sentimental beats underneath it. And I think a lot of shows that are trying to straddle that line forget to be overtly funny and I do think that Life and Beth is overtly funny. Part of that requires that you find Amy Schumer funny to some degree, but that's that's fine. If you don't, you're not going to watch the show, so no pain there. I think that Michael Sarah is very good, and I think the second season, I was I was mixed on it. My like my primary problem with it is I had no interest in the first season as an ensemble. Uh, Amy Schumer's character Beth of the title has a bunch of friends and relatives. And of those people, the only one who I really liked was Susanna flood as Annie, her sister, but she's got all of these kind of wacky friends who are doing wacky things in the background. She's got the, the wacky himbo ex-boyfriend, uh, Matt. And the, the first half of this season to me, made it feel like the show was trying way too hard to actually just be a full ensemble. And her various supporting friends, Jen, Jesse, Maya, none of them are interesting to me at all. And so giving them screen time and the amount of screen time they get in like the first five episodes really took away from the part of the show that I liked the most, which is Amy Schumer and Michael Sarah in a kind of sweet, kind of awkward rom-com situation that is very much based on Amy Schumer's own life, and even more so in this season, as uh, you know, she she gets closer and closer to Michael Sarah's character and begins to wander wonder about if he's on the autism spectrum, etc. And that is a major plot this season, which aligns with Amy Schumer's real life marriage. Uh and I think that's very interesting. What I have to say is while I didn't enjoy the show as it was trying to be an ensemble, I thought every single one of the payoffs to the Friends in the second half of the season worked really well. And, and I don't know what to say about that. Like, like would those payoffs have worked without the amount of screen time that they get in the first half? The answer is probably no, they would not have worked. Did I enjoy the amount of screen time they got in the first half of the season? No, I didn't. So I don't know what to do with that. But the second half of the season does have a lot of emotional beats that played really well for me. And so, so it goes. I, I think I continue to think it's a really good cast. I think this season's kind of underappreciated MVP is Violet Young, who plays the young version of Amy Schubert's character. We, we keep getting flashbacks to her and it's seeing how her past traumas inform her present psyche. And I think Violet Young is doing doing a great job because almost all that she's asked to do is be put in one mortifying situation after another. And I think she does it really well. While I don't like the attempt to ensembleize the show, ton of great guest stars in this season. Like, I don't know how you get a show that manages to pack... Uh, guest appearances from Jennifer Coolidge, Maria Bamford, and Amy Sedaris into the first half of the season. That, to me, is a lot of a very particular type of comic talent packed into a very small place. Uh, So, yeah, I look, I like Life and Beth. I am not going to tell you that it takes some gigantic leap in the second season. So if you didn't like it in the first season... And if you don't like Amy Schumer and all of the other preconceptions that people come into things, I'm not going to tell you it's a show that is going to wildly suddenly change for you. But I, I liked the second season and I did keep watching it. I watched I watched all 10 episodes at any point I could have said, OK, let's watch a fourth episode of The New Look. And I didn't. So there you are. And last and not least in this particular case, uh, the Vince Staples show on Netflix features Vince Staples, who some people will know as a rapper. There is an off chance that if you are a hip hop head, you know his semi hit song, Norf Norf, which I like saying, <laughs> I just like saying Norf Norf, whatever. Anyway, he- What, what? Norf <laughs> Norf. North. N-O-R-F. What, what? <laughs> N-O-R-F. Anyway. <laughs> he's a rapper. He's friends and and colleagues with a number of people in the Odd Future Collective. He's and he's very talented at that. Uh, but more people, well, not more people, more people listening to this podcast. How about that? Uh, will know that he uh, played the kind of in between boyfriend to Quentin, Quinta Brunson's character on the second season of Abbott Elementary. He was the character who was friends with uh, Tyler James Williams's character and. Uh, on one hand, seemed like he was entirely ill-equipped to be a boyfriend, but had amusing and interestingly kind and gentle undercurrents to him. I thought it was a, a good and likable performance. So anyway, the this is this is basically Vince Staples' version of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm or Dave or any number of other shows in that vein. It's it's him reflecting on his level of fame which is the kind of level of fame where Leslie is sitting across from me going, I've never heard of this person or seen him in my life. And some people are like, yeah, I love Vince Stables. And that's kind of how he is famous. Um, So it's set in, in Long Beach, uh, which is where he comes out of, as we say. And it's, it's one of those shows where it has an interestingly semi-surrealist semi-absurdist perspective on his life he he his everyday life include strange and not so strange moments like getting falsely arrested by the police and finding himself in jail overnight, and making new friends, some of whom recognize him all too well, and yet for all of his fame, he goes into a bank and is unable to get a small business loan. At which point, a group of robbers, uh, including someone who is a childhood friend, break in, etc. It's uh, it's um, I would I would Bobcats as another show that's very much in this genre, this, this semi autobiographical, semi absurdist takes on fame. Um, to me, and there are only five episodes of this, only one of the episodes, the Bay Corroboree episode, which is second, uh, worked entirely. That was the only one where I said, okay, the premise is working, the guest stars are working, the level of satire and absurdism are working. This is a really good episode of TV. But the other four episodes, they all had moments where I thought, okay... That is a worldview. That is a distinctive perspective. That is a distinctive sense of humor. I kind of want to follow this. And that's enough. Like, I would recommend this. On the other hand, it is a five-episode show that Netflix is calling a limited series. I do not know why they are doing that. But I guess they are doing it to say, don't get too invested in this. And that, to me, kind of sucks because it doesn't come together as a series in the first season but there's absolutely enough stuff in these 5 episodes to make me go I want to see what second season of Vince Staples show looks like and calling it a limited series is like a way of telling audiences well there's not going to be a second season so don't bother getting invested and that's kind of scummy i don't see the i don't see the purpose to that so I would say to, to check this one out. The first episode is a little bumpy. That's the one with him getting arrested uh, by a trio of police officers who are all actors who you will recognize from television or probably recognize from television. Maybe not. Who knows? The second episode is the really good one. And then the next three are, are hit and miss. There's an episode at an amusement park that I thought was was pretty good. Uh, not as good as the somewhat similar Bupkus episode, Amusement Park. There's a, an episode at a family reunion that is only 19 minutes, and uh, it felt short and abrupt, as did the finale. But there's good stuff here. And I I guess what it's supposed to make you do is say, okay, well, if Netflix is just calling this a limited series and moving on, either A, offering the hope that somebody else will give Vince Staples money to make a real television show next, or just to hope that maybe someone will find a, a place for this actual television show away from Netflix. Unclear. I, I liked a lot of the Vince show. I don't think it works entirely, but I like a lot
2: of it. Or limited series could just be referring to the number of episodes because that doesn't mean anything in this landscape anymore. Limited series continue to get renewed all the time. It just means that it's not a broadcast show with like more than like 15 episodes. That's what it means in I, my brain anyway.
1: Well, I mean that's what that that is an interpretive reason, but there's just no reason for them to call it that. That's the thing. Like why would they be that that is what it says on the listing on Netflix is limited series.
2: Come check out our show. It's limited. That's that it won't take up a big time commitment. I don't know. I, I don't know
1: it's it's semi reasonable, but I don't know that it's fully reasonable given that you know, if, the, if this were the UK, having a five-episode comedy series would just be a comedy series. So I, I think it should just be a called a comedy series, and then maybe people will check it out. So uh, let's – okay, let's not call it a limited series. It's a comedy. The Vince Staples Show, it's a new comedy on Netflix. Only five episodes. You can binge through it all quick-like. There's a lot of potential here. It doesn't always work, but there's potential, and maybe if everybody tunes in – It'll become a real comedy scene. It'll grow up to become a real little boy. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and thrcom slash tv dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
1: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias, where she is rather consistently at snoodit with two O's. And I'm always at the fine print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. We're always interested to hear it. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, we did one last week. It was really good. We're always happy to do another one. Email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the numeral five, at thr.com.
2: And if you're a writer who's struggling to find a gig following the strikes, email me at that same address.
1: Excellent. Yes, do that. Until next week, Leslie.
2: Until next week, Dan.